Hello, and welcome to this Solace Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solacechurch.com. So Obadiah is where we are at this morning. And considering that it's uh, only 21 verses long, I've missed this, but let's do a scripture reading this morning, okay? We actually get to do a scripture reading. And so why don't you stand with me this morning for the reading of God's word. And, you know, we're not going to get to do this with any of the other minor prophets ahead. We'll be here all day reading through Zechariah, which is like 16 chapters. But for Obadiah, we get a scripture reading here. And so uh, why don't you follow along with me as I read. The verses won't be on the screen, so make sure you have a Bible in front of you. I'm reading out of the New King James Version. Let's read here Obadiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 21. Here's what it says. The book of Obadiah. Let's read this. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord concerning Edom. In parentheses, we have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let us rise up against her for battle. Now here's what the Lord says. Verse 2. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is on high. You who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as an eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. If thieves had come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be cut off, would they not have stolen till they had enough? They wouldn't take everything. They would just steal until they have enough and their hands are full and they're like, all right, I've stolen enough. I'm going to go home now. That's what he's saying. Or if grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be searched out. In other words, everything will be taken. How his hidden treasures shall be sought after. All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom? And understanding from the mountains of Esau. Then your mighty men, O Taman, shall be dismayed. To the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. Good morning. Verse 10. For violence, key verse, for violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. And you shall be cut off forever. In that day that you stood on the other side In the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. But you should not have gazed on that day of your brother, in the day of his captivity. Nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You have not entered the gate of my people Or sorry, rather, you should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. It's like the golden rule of judgment, right? Which is do unto others as you want them to do unto you. But God's like, it's going to be done to you as you've done to others. Judgment, just and righteous judgment. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow and they shall be as though they had never been. But on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. The south shall possess the mountains of Esau, and the lowland shall possess Philistia. 
They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead and the captives of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. The captives of Jerusalem who are in Shepharad shall possess the cities of the south. Then saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Uh, this is the word of God to which we say thanks be to God. Let's pray together real quick. Lord, um, this morning we just want to thank you for the book of Obadiah. Uh, that we were just able to take a moment here this morning uh, and stand up with attention to hear and to read. And maybe it's a bit of an unusual thing, God, that we just did. We stood up here and we uh, took a moment here out of our Sunday early morning to recite out old ancient Hebrew poetry. But we know from your perspective, there's so much more to this moment and this opportunity than that. For your word before us, even this prophecy, even this Hebrew poem, this has been given to us as a gift from inspiration. It's been inspired, breathed out by you, and though it was not written to us, we know, God, that the book of Obadiah is for us. And so we ask today, God, that we would have sensitive ears and hearts to what your spirit wants to say to us. How you want to use what you have to say to the people of Edom, God, to speak into our lives. And so, God, uh, that's why we're here. We remind ourselves each and every week that we're gathered here in this middle school. God, we're gathered here as a church this morning because we expect that you want to speak to us, that you're going to speak to us. And so, God, give us ears to hear what you want to say. Holy Spirit, I invite you to speak. God, would you please speak to us? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's a bit of a doozy there. Some nice, heavy judgment of the Edomites to get your Sunday morning going. Um, this is the fourth book in our study on the Minor Prophets. And what it lacks in size, the book of Obadiah certainly makes up for in depth and weight. There's a lot of life application that we can gather from the book of Obadiah. Uh, but let's just take a minute and, as we have, sit down and just step back and try to get some context to what we just read. There was a lot going on there. A lot of judgment, a lot of indictment towards the people of Edom. Uh, who are called the brother of Jacob, also called uh, Esau. A lot of promises about their future and the future of all the nations. So, yeah, what's going on here? Well, we like to start each week laying some groundwork with what we call our prophet profile. Our prophet profile, and it's fitting for a small book like Obadiah that I have a nice little mini TV this morning, okay? But our prophet profile. Uh, the title of the book, let's start there. We ask four questions each week when we dive into a new minor prophet. We ask what's the title, what's the territory, what's the time frame, and what was the task of the prophet? This helps us give a general understanding of what we're studying. This, uh, even just these answers to these questions can give us a pretty solid overview of what the whole book is really all about. So first, you start with the title. It tells us there in verse 1, we read it, that the book of Obadiah is the vision of Obadiah. This is one of the, uh, you could say, common ways that God would um, get his message to his prophets. He would give them a vision. Pretty cool. All right. That they would have this real vision of the word of the Lord. And that's what the book of Obadiah is. It's a vision that God gave a man named Obadiah. Now, there are around 13 to 14 Obadiahs. I say 13 to 14 because we don't know if two of them are the same person. Uh, but we certainly, there, there's 13 to 14 different Obadiahs in the Bible. It's not a common name today. I know we, we're not looking at the next baby on the way going, well, what is with Obadiah? You know, like I know that's not usually on the docket of trendy baby names, but it's 2020 and anything could happen. There, there's probably a baby named Obadiah that was born this year. It's likely. Okay, anyway. Uh, 
though it's not common to us, based on the, the cases I just gave, over 13, it was a very common name in ancient Israel. Um, and the name Obadiah simply means worshiper or servant of the Lord. And the reason why it's either or is because, scripturally speaking, worshiping the Lord and serving him are the same thing. Do we know that? We know that worship isn't just singing. Uh, praise is an act of worship, but it's serving the Lord. When we, when we worship God in that way, what we're doing is serving him in song. But worship is, is living our lives in service to God Almighty. And that's what Obadiah was named for. And this is really, other than the fact that he was a prophet called and, uh, and sent by God, this is all we know about him. And I think just that is a message in and of itself. What an inspiring vision for the kind of lives that you and I could live. To be a faithful, anonymous servant and worshiper of the Lord. There's no recognition, oh, this was that guy, and let's give him all the awards and all the... This is a guy who lived his life ultimately to please and serve God. And this must be a mark, by the way, of any of our service to God and any of our ministry. If, if there's any other motive to serving the Lord than it being to please the Lord and honor the Lord, you, it just has a shelf life. It, it really does. Like, um, whatever that is, whether that's starting a church or sharing the gospel with your coworkers, whatever the, 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 the breadth of that is, um, if we serve unto people, if we serve seeking to get a response, if our ministry and our worship to the Lord and service to the Lord is based on people, we won't last very long. But we can be like Obadiah's. Uh, we can have more than just a short shelf life of, of service to God if what we do is done heartily as unto the Lord and not to men. There's something about how the joy of the Lord can sustain us in serving him when we're doing it unto God and not to people. Like there's, I, I've been there. There's, there's people, man, I was the ministry of other people that were like, if they were serving unto Andrew, they would have given up, right? But uh, th that's a great picture, I think, of what our lives could be about. So uh, here's what we have in this book of this anonymous servant. This vision that God gives Obadiah, uh, as you see up there, the time frame is unknown, so I'm not going to say any more about that because it's just it's a big mystery. But it's a vision. Notice this also in verse 1. It says that it's a vision concerning Edom. Concerning Edom. That's the territory. That's the question we ask. Who is this person preaching to? Where does God send them to? And every book is different. Some of them are the same, but, but they're different in usually the task. Uh, there's other books that have a, a, a variety of different nations. We read Amos last week, and, and uh, Amos literally calls out Israel as the bullseye on this target of all the surrounding nations. Do you remember that last week? You have Joel, which is written specifically to Judah, or Hosea, which is written specifically to the northern kingdom. But the book of Obadiah is not written to Israel at all. The book of Obadiah is a message, a vision that God gave this man for the nation, the people of this place called Edom. Edom is a territory, it's an area ge geographically to the southeast of Israel in modern day Jordan. Uh, if you've seen Indiana Jones, what's the one? The Last Crusade, he's at Petra, do you remember that, where the stones, where the homes are carved into the rock? Okay, that's Edom. Uh, that's where these people reside. Now, the most important thing that you need to know about Edom and the Edomites, and it's the reason why the book of Obadiah is written, is that Edom, these people, they have a vast history of conflict with Israel. Big important point of, of today. Edom, famous for what? Having a long wide history of conflict with Israel. It's a history of conflict, listen to this, that goes back to a sibling rivalry between two brothers, two twin brothers. Okay, anybody have siblings in the house? What's up? Who's got the sibs? Okay. There's a sibling rivalry that's at the root of the conflict between Israel and Edom, between two brothers named Jacob and Esau. These are the sons of Isaac. These are twin brothers. I, I want you to see this in Genesis and see the, uh, the source of this, where this conflict comes from. It's amazing how a family feud between two nations 
can start with two twins, two brothers in the womb. Isaac, the son of Abraham, pleads with the Lord for his wife. Now remember, this family lineage is really important. Abraham is the one to whom God appeared and said, through your seed, through your lineage, I'm going to bring redemption to the whole world. I'm going to bring blessing to the whole world. That was God's vision in the beginning when he created the world, was blessing and goodness and man partnering with God for the beauty of, of, of the world and the, the flourishing of humanity for his glory. We broke away from that. We said, God, we don't want to partner with you. We want to do our own thing. We rebelled with the fallen angels and said, God, we want to be our own God. And so God in his grace, he's always looking to reconstruct what man has destroyed. And in the end, he will fully restore everything that's been broken. But it started through this lineage through which, by the way, Jesus would come, okay, through the lineage of Abraham. Um, but it starts with Abraham. It then goes to Isaac. Isaac pleads with the Lord for his wife. He's like, I got to keep this lineage thing going. To do that, I got to have some kids. And she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, it tells us she conceived. But the children struggled together within her. Look at, by the way, ladies, just look at this experience of pregnancy here. All right? I'm familiar with this from a distance. I just want to say, close enough. I was close, okay? But I, not personally, but, but close enough. All right? The children struggled within her, and she said, if all is well... Why am I like this? That's like the statement of a pregnant woman. If all is well, okay, if children are a heritage, why am I like this? Okay, it's so funny. All right, so why am I like this? So she went and she inquired of the Lord. So she notices that the, the baby in her womb is struggling. Why? Because she's got some womb mates in there. You know what I'm saying? She's got twins. She's got some womb mates. And so the Lord says to her, two nations are in your womb. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? She doesn't say two children, she has two nations. And look at this prophecy. We see this come true throughout history. The Bible's real, God is real, God speaks. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. That's a way to say, you have twins, okay? One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older, who's the firstborn, typically has the birthright and the blessing, is often served by the younger. The, the firstborn is the one who usually takes over, becomes the head of the family. He gets a double portion of the father's wealth. But in this case, the older is going to serve the younger. It says, so when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb, some womb mates. And it says, and the first came out red, little redhead. My son Judah was a little redhead when he came out, little Esau, Judah. All right, he was like a hairy garment all over. Okay, I love that. So they called his name Esau, which just means red. Okay, it says afterward his brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, two for one special. So his name was called Jacob, which just means heel grabber. Genius. They, back then they didn't really think about the names ahead of time. They're like heel grabber, you're heel grabber. You shall be called heel grabber. Okay. Isaac was sixty years old when these children were born. So the boys grew. And here's kind of a profile of their two different personalities, two different guys. Twins, but different in so many ways. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, bear grills, okay? That's the idea. But Jacob was, uh, sorry, but Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. Poor Jacob gets straight shade thrown at him here, okay? Just a mild man. Whatever that means, it's not an encouraging thing to say to your husband later. Honey, you're kind of a mild man, all right, I'm just, that's what I'm feeling about you. But that's Jacob. And while Esau was a man of the field, he was a hunter, Jacob was a man of the household. All right, he was a man uh, at home. His knees weren't as scraped up as Esau. I'm not going to get uh, too much into that. Let's keep going for our, all of our sakes, okay? It says, and Isaac loved Esau. The father loved the firstborn because he ate of his game, all, all that he brought in. He was a hunter, and the dad loved him for that. That's my boy. Let me get that game. But Rebecca, the mother, loved Jacob. You have a daddy's boy, and you have a mama's boy uh, in the household. Now, just that is, is like enough to have some sibling rivalry. Like, you put those two together as brothers, and you can just see Esau, like, on top of Jacob beating him up. You know what I mean? Like, you just, you could just play it out in your head. They are, they, they are already divided between the parents. But that is not the source of their contention. The source of their contention, what we go to find, is actually not physical, it's spiritual. And the, the story of Genesis 25 goes like this. Now, Jacob cooked a stew. 
He was a Gordon Ramsay type there in the kitchen making a nice beef and lentil stew. Sounds delicious, actually, okay? And Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. He was hungry. He was out in the field, and now he's hungry. There's Jacob cooking up his stew, all right? And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with that same red stew. Now, beautiful Hebrew poetry here. Uh, Esau comes out. He's, got a, he's a redhead, and now he wants the red stew. I just, the Bible's so fun, okay? So he says, I'm weary. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Now, actually, it's Edom that means red. Excuse me. Esau means hairy. I think I messed that up. But Edom, it, it means red. So he wants some food. Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. Hold on. Stop for a second before we read over this. This is a wild bargain. Esau is just hungry. He just wants some food. And, and, and instead of going, all right, well, then give me, give me the next you know, bore you catch. All right. He goes, sell me your birthright. This, like any person would look at this and go, what are you, crazy? This is like on Shark Tank where they're like, come on, I'm not going to give you that, right? Like, what's the evaluation? No way, all right? I mean, that's what's going on here. To sell your birthright, that's what Jacob is asking for. Your birthright, as I mentioned, as the firstborn was your inheritance. It was your heritage. It was your double portion of blessing that would come from the father. And in this case, they both knew it was so much more than physical. They knew there was a spiritual heritage to Abraham that went to Isaac that was meant to go to the next firstborn to Esau. This is a sacred thing. This is the lineage through which the Messiah would come. This is no small matter. But notice Esau's carelessness for sacred things. Esau says, look, I'm about to die. And now, I don't know if this is just like a teenage boy being starving. Like, mom, I'm going to die. Make me a hot pocket, right? I don't know what that is here. But he's like, I need to eat. So he's a man who's concerned with the things of the flesh. This is important. He says, what is this birthright to me? Maybe he really felt he was at certain death. He's like, I don't care what double portion I get. I'd rather eat than, than starve to death. Um, I'd rather be full and not have a birthright in his mind than die and never get it. But he's actually being careless with something so weighty. It's important. Listen, in a, in a day and age where like the sacred and the secular has been blurred together in unknowable similarities, it's important for us as Christians to be those that continue to, to divide the light from the darkness. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, what happened to, like, the sacred things of God that matter, you know? Like, being alone with Jesus, like church being a place where God's presence really is. I have concern for that in the church and in my own life sometimes, when I'm, when I'm not taking as seriously the things that God calls sacred. And that's what Esau does. He goes, well, who cares? And then Jacob said, okay, well, then swear to me of this day. So he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. He sold it to him for a morsel of bread. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank and arose and went his way. Then Esau despised his birthright. That's the narrative now of Esau. And the idea there of despise, you might say, Esau, do you despise your birthright? He goes, no, I don't feel that way. But from the outside looking on, from God's perspective, Esau disregarded uh, something that was sacred. He, sacred. he traded for some food. And so, th listen, this is the start of the contention. For more on this, read the rest of the book of Genesis and see the conflict that plays out in this relationship. It's a great study. I hope we can get into it one day, looking at the life of Jacob. Um, but this is where it starts. Now, this contention, I want you to hear of these two brothers who ended up trading uh, Esau here, his birthright, Jacob, a morsel of food. This, this simple start, it leads to a family feud between them that would last for centuries to come. Uh, Jacob's descendants would go on to be called the what? The Israelites, a key figure in Bible history. The Israelites, which means the children of Israel, because Jacob's name gets changed to Israel. He, his children are the children of Israel. Um, Esau's children go on to be the Edomites. Based off this encounter where he's a redhead who wants the red food, he's, he's, they're called the Edomites. 
Now, what's interesting about this contention is that this is really important. Israel is commanded by God. Despite the history of the family feud, uh, Israel is commanded by God to always treat Edom as a brother. This is really important, always to treat them as family. There were certain provisions in the law that Israel was to make for an Edomite. You weren't to enslave an Edomite. You were to give uh, an Edomite special family treatment. You know what I'm talking about? When you treat someone, it's like, you're my family. I'm going to treat you that way. Uh, That is what God commanded Israel to be about. Unfortunately, that family treatment wasn't reciprocated by Edom. That's the history. Uh, The Edomites positioned themselves, despite every advance that Israel would make for unity, uh, it takes two to reconcile, one to forgive, two to reconcile, And despite all the advancements of Israel to be united, Edom, they positioned themselves as bitter enemies of Israel. And this is just just the history. of. You can read the whole narrative of the Old Testament. And time and time again, you see Edom bringing violence, bringing attack, bringing rejection to the nation of Israel. One of the most notable is Numbers chapter 20. In Numbers chapter 20, Israel has wandered through the wilderness. They've escaped Egypt. God has delivered them. And they're now coming up to, as they're wandering, to the, to the land of Edom. And they give this desperate plea to the Edomites to let them pass through. They're like, we're not going to take any of your food. We're just going to just slip on through. And th- uh, three separate times, the Edomites say kind of the Gandalf thing, thou shall not pass. That's what they do. Three separate times, they reject them. Uh, and, and again, this is historically, this is family. And they close them off at the door despite a desperate plea. In other cases, if you read First and Second Kings, you see Edom always ready to aid any other attacking army against Israel. They would never pick the fight on their own. You know those people, right? But like if there's a bigger guy pick, they'd be like, yeah, we're going to, yeah, that's right. What he said, you know, it's like I have your back back here, you know. And so that's, that's what they would do. Anytime there was some nation coming against Israel, they would always in like a conniving, sketchy, scumbag way, they would always kind of come from the back and take out the vulnerable once the, the bigger enemies were taken out. And so they like were bent in opposition Towards Israel. If you guys remember just a moment ago when we read in Obadiah, Obadiah describes a time in Israel's history when they were completely ravaged. And if you look at it there, you can look at it again with me. It says there in verse 12 that you should not have gazed on the day of your brother and the day of his captivity. You should not have rejoiced over the children of Israel. It says in verse 13, you should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. And it says that also in verse 13 that they laid their hands on their substance. They stood at the crossroads and they cut off among all, the, who, all those who had escaped. So do you just get the imagery of how, how like, like crummy these people are? So other nations come in, potentially the Babylonians here, and they just destroy Israel. And Edom's just kind of waiting around. They remind me of what are those little things in Star Wars? You know what I'm talking about, those little people? And anytime like a, 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 a ship crashes, they're like, ah, and they grab the stuff and they run away. Edomites, okay? Those are Star Wars versions of Edomites, okay? That's what they would do. And they would wait at the crossroads. And if there was anybody, like, escaping out the side, they wouldn't be, in, like, putting themselves in harm way and, and going and attacking the worst of Israel. But they'd be along the backside. So if anybody escaped from Israel, they would kill them. So all that to say, God is not a fan of the Edomites. Now, why is that? The reason is because, like any parent, God takes it very personal when you mess with his kids. Like, say what you want to me, and I, and I have my own pride that you'll have to deal with, but you mess with my kids? Like, I'm still, you guys got to pray for me. Soccer season starting back up again? Like, <laughs> the things that rise up in my heart? I'm going to fight that kid's dad right now. Pastor Andrew is going to throw down on this Sabre soccer field, okay? Like, it's crazy, that sort of parental protective heart. And so that's what you have in the book of Obadiah. If you make war with God's kids, guess what? You've made yourself an enemy of God. You've made war against God. And now here's what happens when you make war against God. God makes war against you. Um, did you read it there? It says there in verse 1, we've heard a report from the Lord. Look at this. This is a really interesting verse. 
and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Many interpreters think that this is an, 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 an angelic messenger. So there's this like heavenly headline that's coming. There's a news report. This just in. God is calling for all the nations of the earth to rise up in battle against Edom. Now, here's a, a simple point. You can write this down. Um, it never works out when you're at war with God for you or me. Like, so God always wins. He's got no L's, all W's, right? The end of the story, he wins. In fact, when Jesus comes back, have you ever read that scene? There's not even a battle. There's just his return and his victory. And so this is the, like, so to be at war with God is like you've lost before you started. And so to be at war with God's kids, that, put, that puts Edom in this position where they have been careless with sacred things as, an, as Esau multiplied into a people. You see that? They're just like their father, Esau, multiplied into a nation of people. Uh, they're not concerned for sacred things. And so God, through Obadiah, he pronounces this message that he's making war against them. And the war that God's making, it, it's certain. And so this is what we call the task of this book. If we go back to that prophet profile, the task of the book of Obadiah is to do this. It's to pronounce judgment on the people of Edom for their crimes against Israel and to humble them for their prideful opposition against the Lord. That's the task. Um, the book of Obadiah is a Hebrew doom poem. A doom poem. It just, it's just simply saying, here's the future of Edom. It's interesting because there's no like call to repentance in the end. Like, but if you return, it's like, no. And, and the book of uh, Obadiah shows us the justice of God. The righteous justice of God. It's interesting too, did you remember that verse where God's like, whatever you put out, you're going to get back. That, that's how God is with his judgment. You see that a lot. You see that with Egypt. Uh, Egypt uh, took out all the firstborns of the nation of Israel, drowned them in the Nile. And so what does God do? He's like, okay, I'm going to take out all of your firstborns. Like, it's very just. We might not always feel like uh, that the punishment fits the crime eternally, but God is the only just judge. Let's remember this. And God is not, in the words of my favorite Christian hip-hop artist, Shailin, God is not subject to fallen notions of fairness. He's not subject to our own fallen notions of what we think is, is fair when it comes to justice. God, listen, you, you and I, when it comes to what's righteous and fair, we want God to be on that throne. Now, our sin doesn't want him to be there, right? Because we know what that means before him. But God is a just and righteous judge. He's the only one. He's the only true Supreme Court. He's the only true just and perfect judge. And that's what he's bringing upon the nation of Edom for their crimes against Israel. And the specific judgment that he's bringing, did you see it there in verse 10. I'll have it up there on the screen. He says, for violence against your brother Jacob. So I love that God is still saying, they're your family. And despite them being your family, you've been violent to them. You haven't treated them as a brother. You've treated them as an enemy. And for that sibling violence, shame shall cover you. And here's the promise that God makes. And you shall be cut off forever. You shall be cut off forever. That's what God making war against them looks like. It's just like, this is what's going to happen to you. There's no fight. Uh, the just judgment is just as you have done to others. It's going to be done to you. And in 70 AD, when Rome stormed Jerusalem, uh, destroyed the temple at that time, the Edomites were also wiped out, and they were, listen, cut off forever. Because if God says it's going to happen, it will always happen. Now, I think one of the greatest evidences to the fact that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fact that that is the one true and living God, is that who's still a nation today? The Israelites. Haven't a lot of people tried to get rid of the Israelites? A lot of people. Their God must be alive. Their God must be true. And that's the point that I'm making here. The point that I'm making here is that when God says one nation is going to endure and another nation will perish it's going to happen and that's listen again that's what this book is about um, it's interesting little fun fact Herod the Great that tried to kill Jesus was an Edomite see that contention all the way up to when Jesus is born but uh, he would reach his end so would the people of Edom 
Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word. Like, like, come on. Now, here's a question. That's a joke. I'm joking. That was a joke prayer. Maybe right now you're going, so what? Do you know what I'm saying? Cool series, Andrew. The Edomites were cut off forever. I'm going to apply that tomorrow when I go to work. I'm just going to let everyone know the Edomites were cut off forever. Did you know that? You know? So here's the question. I love that we all bowed our heads. Sorry, I won't do that again. That's maybe treating something sacred. I probably just did something. that. Okay, anyway. Forgive me, God. I'm an idiot. Um, each week, what are we asking? What's the ultimate question? What is the major, major message? What is the great? We did it. What is the major message of the book of Obadiah? That's what we're really trying to get at here. What does the book of Obadiah speak to us? Is the major message of Obadiah, don't beef with God's kids? Is it don't sell your birthright for bread and lentil soup because this will happen? Is it don't fight with your siblings? I might tell my kids that's what the message is. It's like, do you want to be cut off forever? Okay, stop fighting. No, the major message of the book of Obadiah is actually found in the description and the characterization of Edom's sin. Like, what makes a nation rebel against the one true and living God? What, what makes someone, like, because that's crazy, right? Isn't it crazy to go to war with God? What is the one characteristic that would make someone do something so foolish and carry on a family feud for nations to come to their own demise? Let's ask it this way. How could someone who knows that God created them sent his son Jesus to die for them, to save them. And, and they know that God has a calling and a purpose for them. How could someone knowing that fight against that hope and stay in their sin? It's the same thing that the Edomites were indicted for. It's this thing called pride. Pride. Pride, pride proudfulness. Pridefulness. That, that's the major message of this book. Uh, the way that we've been trying to phrase it each week is similar. It's, it's this. It's the prideful nature of God's fallen creation. Uh, multiple times in this passage, that's what Edom is indicted for. The reason why you're rebelling against the one true and living God is your pride. And that's all it is. I mean, it's the, it's the one thing that will make us, instead of resolving the argument... Have you noticed how long your pride can keep that conversation going? Have you ever, you ever been there? That conflict? I mean, like, we could just try the thing where we're like, we're humble, and we resolve it, and we say, I'm sorry. Or we can stick to the argument in our pride. It's Proverbs 13, 10. What a, what a great uh, moral of the story between Esau and Jacob. By pride comes nothing but strife. But with the well-advised is wisdom. Esau was not well-advised. They did not take the counsel they were given. Instead, in their pride, they resisted God. In their pride, they resisted Israel. And the result of that is God resisted them. Here's the idea. Pride was at the root of their rebellion. And as I said, that's the same message for us as well. Um, pride is also at the root of our rebellion. Have you noticed that? I think it was John Calvin that says that pride is the mother pregnant with all sins. Uh, one of the, listen, each week I, I take a moment to, I try to reference a few books that I'll, I'll read or that has aided my study. Um, but, but I just want to say, when it comes to this book that I'm holding in my hand, it's Humility by Andrew Murray. This is one of those book recommendations that I'm like, I'm not like, hey, you should read this, but like, read this. Like, you need, you and I need to read this. Um, this is one of those books that you're, like, going into surgery when you're reading it. It's like, okay, heart surgery time. Um, and in this book, Humility by Andrew Murray, uh, Andrew Murray, he unpacks 
how pride is really at the root of all of our problems in life. It's, it's the one thing that is not only causing dysfunction in our life today, but it was the one thing that caused dysfunction from the very beginning. Look at this lengthy explanation. Here's what Andrew Murray says. He says, humility, the place of entire dependence upon God rather than self, is the first duty and the highest virtue of the creature. Uh, this is another way of saying uh, God created you and I as human beings to be dependent creatures, right? He created us to depend upon God. That's humility. Humility is need. Humility is dependence. That's what we were created for. He says, and so pride or the loss of this humility is the root of every sin and evil. Uh, it says it there twice, I think, does it? And so pride lost root of every sin and evil. It was when the now fallen angels, notice this, began to look upon themselves with self-complacency in the spiritual realm that they were led to disobedience and they were cast down from the light of heaven into outer darkness. Even so, it was when the serpent, listen to this phrase, when the serpent breathed the poison of his pride, the desire to be as God into the hearts of our first parents, they too fell from their high estate into all the wretchedness into which man is now sunk. In heaven and earth, pride, self-exaltation, is the gate and the birth and the curse of hell. A heavy poetic way to describe that what's wrong with us, what's wrong with this world, what was wrong with the fall was pride. Rather than depending upon God, we said, God, we're going to do our own thing. And that has given birth, he says, to everything wrong in this world. That's the major message of Obadiah. That's what you see with the nation of Edom. You see, see that same problem. Pride is the, is the issue. Uh, we see in our own lives the same prideful nature as fallen creation. Created to depend, instead we are independent. Now, why is this important to point out a few things? First, because First uh, Peter, uh, five, well, I guess I'll start with Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16 says that God hates pride. It lists seven things that God hates. Six things the Lord despises. Seven things that the Lord hates. Just speaks of this compact, complete list of the things that God is really not a fan of. And one of those is a proud look. It's a prideful person. It's arrogance. It's being conceited, narcissistic. God hates pride. 1 Peter 5 says this, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your, to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Why? For God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So look at Edom. They're resisting God. God is resisting them because of their pride. He gives grace to the humble. That's the amazing thing. The good news of the gospel is that prideful sinners can find salvation. God says, yeah, listen, by the way, we don't ever say, hey, I, I was prideful, and now I'm humble. I did it. I'm humble, and I'm proud of it. It's like, okay. The true confession is I'm, I'm a prideful person by nature, but I'm in pursuit of humility. Because I know God gives grace to the humble. What a great invitation. What about Jesus in Luke 14, 11, For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Like, these are scriptures that are all saying the same thing. Like, this is how it works with God. Pride, as seen in the nation of Edom, leads to humility, leads to being humbled. But humility, when we humble ourselves in our relationships and with God, God will lift us up. And then the last, I, I think, com, um, important reference for this, uh, Proverbs 16, 18. Now th and this is another one of those like summary verses of the nation of Edom, and hopefully not our lives, but it, it could be our lives if we don't uh, watch out for this. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. You ever heard that expression, pride comes before the fall? That's from the Bible here. Um, better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. So, so Proverbs is having us evaluate our own lives and saying, okay, what kind of company are you keeping? Are you considered someone who has company with the humble, whom God is going to lift up? Or are you fighting? Are you continuing? Are you resisting God because of pride? To your own demise, to your own destruction. I love this other quote. I just got some quotes and verses for you. I hope you're okay with that. Check it out. 
Kanye West says expository preaching is really important. I believe him. Um, Andrew Murray says this. This is, this is uh, a keeper. This is like, I was going to say something else, but I, I held back. Uh, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. What a, what a beautiful call. Pride must die in you or else nothing of heaven can live in you. So, so this is just what scripture gives us. Like, this is our condition, but here's our invitation. Here's the truth. Pride, our condition as fallen creatures made to depend on God, but we haven't, like our first parents, we've breathed the poison of pride that the fallen angels have, have put upon us. It causes us, like Edom, to resist God, to resist his purposes, but humility is before us. Humble yourselves, Scripture says, under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you. Now, we read through Obadiah here, and what we had here in this, in this book is, and listen, every week as we're studying this, like, you don't have to limit your study of these books to Sunday. If anything, I'm, like, opening the gate for us. Um, I want to encourage you to, like, to spend your week in the book of Obadiah. This Tuesday and Wednesday at our men's and women's communities, we're going to be diving deeper into what we're studying here, looking deeper into the word. Uh, hopefully uh, being honest about our proclivity for pride. Uh, but when you read through Obadiah again this week, what you're going to see in this book is you're going to see these little insights into pride. Sort of the details, the characteristics of what it looks like. And it's important to know what pride looks like because you may be blind to it in your own life. Because that's one of the things that pride does is it blinds us. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that one of the greatest indicators of pride in my life is my frustration with someone else's pride. Right? The definition of self-righteousness and pride is hearing a message on pride and applying it to someone else. Yeah, they really, I wish they were at church today. They are so prideful. Do you see that, though? And so it's important for us to know like, what the works of the flesh manifest as. It's important for us to know what pride can look like so that we can look out for it and so that we can make sure it dies in us. I want heaven to live in me. I want that. But for some things to live, other things have to die. And, you know, I, I learned this last week. This is my different method here. But instead of preaching five points, I'll just give you them all at once, okay? You're welcome, okay? All right. When you read through Obadiah, you have these five characteristics of pride. Write these down. These are really important. We want to watch out for these in our lives. In verses 3 through 4, we see that, that pride self-exalts. It's the first thing pride does. It self-exalts. In verses 3 and 4, this is really interesting. God's writing to Edom, and he tells them, The pride of your heart has deceived you. He says, You who dwell in the clefts of the rock whose habitation is on high. He's saying, you're exalted. You who say in your heart, who's going to bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down. Um, now, God is speaking here like uh, in what's called a double entendre, all right? It's a hip-hop term, all right? But it's also a Hebrew poetry term, okay? It means that God is saying two things at once. God is saying something literal and physical about Edom. Uh, they were those that lived among the clefts of the rock uh, on Mount Ser. Um, they, like in Indiana Jones and, and Jordan, they carved their homes into the mountains. So, so God is, uh, the double entendre here is, he's speaking of their physical location as being reflective of actually their spiritual posture. So just as they have made their homes with the stars, just as they have elevated and exalted themselves as high as the eagles, so is their heart towards the Lord. They've self-exalted their hearts. This is what pride does. Pride self-exalts. It lifts you high. It puts you high. Um, and scripture warns against this. Uh, Paul says this in Romans 12. He says, for I say through the grace given to me to everyone who's among you, really important, ready? Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Now, there's a balance here, isn't there? Because there's another, uh, there's another danger here where you think of yourself more lowly than you ought to. And you forget that you are in Christ, um, even apart from Christ, you're created in the image of God. 
You have dignity and you have value and you do have worth. You have intrinsic worth that comes from your maker. Comes from God. The, the danger of humanity is either to, you know, now here's what God has done, right? You read this in Psalm chapter, I believe it's Psalm 2 or 3, where it's this great explanation of what God did with, through creation. He, he made humans and he put humans under God over creation. So there's, there's, there's this worth that comes from God over creation, but there's this submission and humility that comes under God. Now, what has secularism done? Think of secularism, the idea that there is no God. Secularism has put man over God and under creation. So you're just like every other creature. You're just an evolved accident, um, and you just got to find the spark of divine within you. You're God. Just be God. And that's the temptation we always have fallen into. The temptation has always been to either exalt myself too high or put myself too low. But, but Paul says, just think of, it's not, listen, humility is not thinking about yourself like way too, it's not about high or, or super low. It's about thinking of yourself rightly, knowing who you are in the eyes of God. And, and therefore, when you're secure with who you are in the eyes of God, you can be a humble servant to others. It's amazing what that produces. Uh, C.S. Lewis says that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. So true. So pride, this is what we have to fight against, this self-exaltation. So here's what self-exaltation could look like. We saw that in Edom. They made their home among the stars. They'd exalted themselves. And so if you're self-exalting, what it means is you're looking down on other people. And it's usually based on your accomplishments, like we made our homes in the cleft of the rock. Look at me, I'm a good Christian. I'm better than you. That's the kind of thing. It's boasting. It's boasting in your knowledge, in your arrogance, boasting in your performance, your track record, your resume, whatever that thing is. What, look at it. Identify it. What is causing me, my gifts, to elevate myself to a point where I am much higher in my own eyes than I need to be? And the result of it is I look down on other people. I look down on opportunities, too. I'm like, that task is below me. So I'm not a servant. But I'm here to be served. That's the idea of self-exaltation. Be careful, pride self-exalts. But be careful also because pride self-deceives. Uh, and, and notice that. It says there that, that as they're saying, who's going to bring me down? God's like, I am. And he says, the pride of your heart, there in verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you. It says these nations are going to come in. And at the end of verse 7, it says no one's aware of it. Nobody's going to see it coming. That's what pride does. Pride, pride isn't just thinking of yourself too high. It's like believing things about yourself that aren't even true. Okay? Pride is self-deceiving. It leads you to think you're more awesome than you really are. I know that's like a, can sound a little offensive because you're not not awesome. You're awesome. You're not as awesome as you tend to think you are, though. I'm not as awesome as I tend to think I am. I'm not as awesome as my pride thing tends to think I am. Usually, the, the, the welling of pride in my life is the direct result of not spending enough time with who God is. Because if I'm with God, and, I, and by the way, that's the encounter of every single person in the Bible. When they see God for who they really are, they're not lifted up anymore. They're on their face. They're like, I am not you. I see who you are, and therefore I see who I really am. And I don't want to be self-deceived. That's what God says, uh, that they're self-deceived. Look at Galatians 6.3. If anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And, and we know that God is not the author of deception, the enemy is, a lot of us have been deceived into thinking, I don't need to go to men's and women's community. I have enough in and of myself to walk with Jesus. That's, pr that's pride. That's pride. Okay? You're thinking yourself to be something when you're nothing. Humility says, I know who I am before a holy God. Not only does pride self-deceive, uh, this is a big one. Pride self-agrees. Agrees with yourself. It loves to agree with your view only. It, it self agrees. Notice this, and I have it up there. Verses 8 and 9 is where Obadiah says, as he comes to bring judgment against Edom, he's going to bring judgment against their wisdom and their knowledge. Um, so, in their pride, they had what's called um, this pride of knowledge. Uh, it's, it's 1 Corinthians 8 1. It says, concerning things offered to idols, there's some context there, but just notice this. Uh, we know that we have all knowledge, but this is important. Knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. Look what I know. 
This, it's like a helium balloon filling up my brain because the more I know, I get the kind of big head, tiny heart syndrome thing where I know it all, I've learned it all. And, and, and what knowledge puffing up looks like is this phrase that's used a lot in Proverbs. It's this idea, uh, Solomon uses this phrase about being wise in your own eyes. Have you ever seen that? Um, it's self-agreeing, self-agreeing. So when you self-agree and you're wise in your own eyes, which this is important, i got to show you this. Proverbs says this, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. So if you're like, man, I'm a fool, it's like, you're fine. You're all right. Just don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't be so self-agreeable. Okay, let's talk about this. Self-agreeable. It's like how you see it is how it is. So there's no room in your life for God to speak to you. John Calvin says that confidence in our own knowledge is the biggest screen preventing the work of the Spirit in our lives. It's a screen preventing the work of the Spirit because of how, what I know, what I see. I've been in the church my whole life. I know all the verses. I know all the truths. I know all the principles. I've studied more than you. I've read more blogs than you, okay? And so how you see it is the way it is. So between you and God, what, like, what can you teach someone that doesn't know anything or that knows everything, rather? Really doesn't know anything, but thinks they know everything. It's like uh, Evie the other day. Uh, my kids are, we're going to pray for them to be delivered from this addiction to Fireman Sam, okay? It's bad. I'm, they're like, what, like, what do you want to watch? Fireman Sam. I'm like, no, we are not watching it. Selfishly, I'm sick of that show, okay? So Fireman Sam, there's like a British accent on it. I put it on the other day, and Evie goes, Dad, turn it off. I go, why? This isn't the right Fireman Sam. They're speaking with a British accent. I go, what do you mean? She goes, they're speaking Japanese. <laughs> she has this little lisp. I go, Evie, they're speaking English. She goes, no, Dad, I think it's Spanish, she says. And they're speaking with this, like, British accent, and she thinks it's... Now, I'm trying to tell her it's not Japanese. But she's so wise in her own eyes, that little one, that she's unable to hear or receive. And listen, like, can I remind us as Christians... We are called disciples of Jesus. We are learners. You can't learn anything if you know it all, if you're a know-it-all. Are you prideful in a self-agreeing way? You can't learn anything from anyone because you're the teacher. Uh, the, the heart of this is to have a teachable spirit, amen? Like God, and by the way, this doesn't mean don't be confident in what God has showed you. Be careful. Like, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. But there's a way to know truth that keeps you humble, that keeps you learning, that keeps you listening, that causes you not to be wise in your own eyes. That's pride, not humility. Uh, pride also self-concerns. This is one of the biggest indictments against Edom was the way that they, uh, it's verses, what did I put up there, 10 through 14? If you read that section there, we read that already. But the way that they capitalized on Israel's calamity. How can, I, how can I benefit off your downfall? How can you go low so that I can go higher? It's back to self-exaltation, but it's a certain characteristic of self-exaltation that seeks to better myself at the expense of others. I seek to promote myself at the expense of others. I care more about me than I do about you. I'm concerned with my needs, not your needs. I'm self-interested. It's self-concerned. Me, 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 me. That's what it is. That's the song it sings. Me, my preferences, my desires. It's being self-absorbed with you. This was Edom. So much so that they were rejoicing over the downfall of Israel. Now, be careful because this is one of the easiest things to fall into. It's like, yes, they got fired. They deserved it. You get promoted, they get demoted. What does that do to your heart? Or you get the same job, but they get demoted. You know that thing that kind of is like, <laughs> you know that thing? That's pride. It's self-concerned. Now, this is the opposite of what Scripture calls us into. Look at Philippians. You know this verse, right? Philippians chapter 2. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Here's the opposite of being self-concerned. It's being others-concerned, others-centered. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. 
I'm others-centered. Now, the only person that can truly do this, the only person that can truly esteem others higher than themselves is the person that has their esteem in Christ. The person who knows, they're, they're not like trying to get it from people's affirmation and attention. They don't need compliments. They don't need reaffirmations. They are secure. Humility is found in knowing who I am in Christ. I know who I'm not, and I know who I am in him. That's humility. And when I'm secure in who I am in Christ, I actually am free to esteem others. I can do something called honor others. Draw attention to what they're doing and honor them and encourage them. Because I'm not always like needy, like, what about me? Who's, nobody's seeing me. It's like, what about them? The only person that can do that is the person that knows that God sees them, right? God, you see me. And so that humility, it leads to that concern for others. Look out not only for your own interests, your self-concerns, but for the interests of others. Like, I see this in a really subtle way in the church today with Christians that are so obsessed with how sinful they are that they go to work and they're not available to be used by God to the people around them because they're so self-absorbed with their brokenness. There's another side of this where it's like all about self-help, the better you, look yourself in the, mirror, you know, in the mirror and chest bump yourself to make you feel better. But there's this other side that's huge where you're so, like I'm not saying don't repent of your sin, but don't be so self-absorbed that you're not able to actually care for the concerns of those around you. You're available for God to use you. And then lastly, um, pride self-destroys. And that's the future of the nation of Edom. Pride comes before destruction. I invite the band to come out. We'll close on this note with a, a call to uh, humble ourselves before God. But there's this certain nature to the result of, of pride. Um, Jesus promises this. He says, if you in your whole life, if you continue to harden your heart towards God, exalt yourself against the Lord, it will end in humility. You, one way or another, humility is coming, right? Either by voluntary submission to God or by encountering him for who he really is. Um, the nation of Edom is uh, a case study in this, knowing the destructive nature of pride, knowing what God feels about it, knowing that if pride is alive in me, um, then heaven is, is somewhat dead in me. It's not as alive as God wants it to be. So here's the question, okay? Uh, I've been struggling with some of these because like the major messages are like not that encouraging. It's like fallen creation, nice and prideful, you know? Like, but this is just the truth of where we find ourselves apart from a savior that can lead us beyond where we are on our own. One of the, thing, uh, the key things that Andrew Murray points out in his book, Humility, is not only how proud we naturally are, but how stuck we are in our pride. You ever felt that? You ever felt like you can't escape from your pride? And that's a statement about our need for a savior. And so what does Paul do for us? What does the gospel of Jesus say to us? Those who have fallen and are prideful, In Philippians 2, the gospel is able to wash over us. As Paul says this, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was first in Jesus. We look at Jesus, who being in the form of God, didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. Jesus was, is, forever will be God. There's Jesus upon his throne as God. And what did Jesus do? He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. He came in the likeness of man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even the death of of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul says, hey, prideful fallen sinners, here's what you got to do. Take on a new mindset. 
Here's where your mindset comes from. It comes from seeing the mindset of Jesus. You look at Jesus, you see God humbling himself to save us. Thomas Aquinas said, if you want an example of humility, look no further than the cross. You look at the cross, you see the lowest that anybody has ever gone, the God of the universe, in order to save you and me from our pride, in order to win us over with his love, in order to humble us. The cross says this, not only are you a sinner, but you can't save yourself. You must depend on God to be forgiven. You must depend on God to get to heaven. You must depend on God to be redeemed. It's all summed up. And I'll close with this quote by Andrew Murray. He says this, he says, his humility, Jesus' humility, that was our salvation. And his salvation is our humility. His humility. Thank you, God, for the humility of Jesus didn't boast in who he was, but came as a humble servant to die on the cross for your and my sin. And that salvation, when my eyes are fixed not on, on me, but my eyes are fixed on Jesus, it produces humility. So we want to close today by singing this song, Build My Life. It's a song that recenters us upon the foundation of the love of God. And we get to lay here at the foot of the cross this morning. Anything else that you've been building your ego on? Anything else that you've been boasting in? Anything else that has been a source of pride in your life? Whatever those characteristics are, I'll even leave these up, the tendency of this. This is an opportunity to see Jesus as the servant that brings us to salvation and humility. Let's sing it. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.